Good morning, everyone. How are you all today? And you're listening to Here's the Issue with me, Reese. Alright, everyone. So starting off, we have um, absolutely tragic news. I'm sure many of you have already heard it's been the biggest thing in the news. The Oxford High School shooting in uh, near Detroit, Michigan. This happened on the 30th. Um, so 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly uh, shot and killed four people at his um, high school. Um, this is a bit different from other nationalized uh, school shooting stories, actually. It's quite an interesting case, and so I, I do want to take some time to go through this. So, um, I want to start off, uh, this has been sort of portrayed as like a timeline of events and red flags. I, I don't know if that's the best narrative to go with this. But I think understanding the context of everything that's happened is uh, very valuable in this case. So on November 26th, okay, about four days before the shooting, um, his father uh, took him to a gun store and they went and they bought a gun, a uh, Sig Sauer, I believe, 9mm. Um, they bought this gun uh, for the son to practice with, presumably, you know, for, for those that have a family of gun users, often a gun will be called a, a a gun for a certain, like, youth, it will be the youth gun, but it's technically in the name of one of the parents. And so, uh, presumably, that was the case with this gun. As well, um, the mother posted photos of her taking the son shooting, um, saying, you know, here's father-mother, I mean, ah, mother-son bonding time. Um, again, something that is really, really normal for families that own and uh, use guns regularly. This is where it gets, um, I guess, a, a bit abnormal. Abnormal is definitely the correct term. Um, so teachers um, have found, um, yeah, on Monday, teachers found Ethan um, in school searching up ammo in class. This distressed the teacher and uh, basically like reported him to the office. The school tried to reach out to his parents via text and email but got no response. Um, as well, Ethan tried to explain it away as, oh, I had just, you know, got to go with my family, and so we're, I was looking at ammo. Um, which, I mean, when you get a gun, you do have to buy ammo. Um, but I, I, I would say it would be fairly normal, um, like a normal take to say that the majority of gun owners would definitely advise against uh, looking at ammo during school hours. Um, one, for the obvious, the obvious connotation that has... Um, so, yeah, I would definitely say that was, um, a lot of people on the left are pointing this as a red flag. Um, at some level, I'd have to agree with them. Um, I definitely would be open to arguments against it, but right now where I stand, I'd say that's pretty much a red flag, catching a student, uh, looking up ammo in school. Um, as well, after, um, the, like I said, the, the school tried to reach out to the parents about this and received no response. Um, but later the mom texted, um, her son saying, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn to not get caught. Um, which, which at the very least demonstrates that, um, the parents were aware that this had happened. Uh, that night, um, well, according to the prosecutors, they also found that night that, um, Ethan had filmed videos saying he would want to shoot students and he wrote in some of his journals about it. Um, I, I, um, based on what I read, he didn't post these videos anywhere. He just recorded these videos, um, which I don't know. That's, that's weird to me though. I, it's not, I haven't, I've heard people talking about people that, um, basically are having psychotic breaks and such, just like filming videos. I guess that's, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it's normal for people to write and um, video about things and then keep them to themselves. I just, I've never been one for it, so. But regardless, then on Tuesday, okay, Tuesday the 30th, um, about four days after buying the gun and going shooting with it, this is, this is the day of the shooting. So on that day, uh, teachers caught Ethan um, with a journal, which, with a, with drawings, which they described as um, a semi-automatic uh, handgun, uh, pointing at the words, the thoughts won't stop, help me, um, which I would say are very, very, um, red flag, if 
about, you know, this kid has some issues. Uh, maybe we need to look into this. Um, and the drawing also included a bullet, a drawing of a bullet with the words blood everywhere written above it. Um, and the words, uh, my life is useless and the world is dead were written. Um, so yeah, that's a very, very concerning drawing. Um, I think, I think that's uncontroversial to say. As well, anyone that draws that, I think, qualifies for needing, um, mental help, mental counseling, um, and as someone that you should, you know, be worried about uh, doing acts of harm against themselves or others. Um, and so the school immediately called a meeting with the parents. So, so that day, that day, parents came in um, and the school had a meeting with the parents. Um, and the school told them that they would have to get um, Ethan mentally evaluated within 48 hours. And, and now there's, I've seen some um, different... Um, different events happening after this, um, like a, a controversy about what exactly happened. So after this meeting, Ethan basically remained in school. And there seems to be some controversy over what happened. Some news places have been reporting that the school let Ethan return to class. Some have been reporting that um, Ethan's parents um, basically said that, basically wanted Ethan to return to class and the school eventually agreed to it. And there are some that say that, like, Ethan's parents straight up refused and just left, which sort of implies that Ethan, that, and then also they'll say that, like, the school principal or vice principal was not made aware that Ethan, Ethan remained, which sort of implies that Ethan was supposed to go and then he just didn't. Um, so there is some, seems to be some controversy over how exactly they went from the meeting to Ethan remaining in school. But either way, I think it's safe to say that, um, if you found a um, a student drawing this, you wouldn't want them uh, to one immediately return to school that day. Um, you know, even if it wasn't, let's say, let's say the drawing was not even like uh, blood everywhere, school shooting type drawing. Let's say it was just like drawings of a noose, um, or and him saying like, "I want to die, I'm going to kill myself," things like that. Like, again, also very very distressing. And you know what? I wouldn't want that student to remain in school that day, even if, even if it was pretty clear that he was only a threat to himself. You know, um, let's face it: school, the education you're getting at school, is not that important. Um, that you're, if you're so mentally disturbed that you have to be drawing things like that as an outlet um, to cope with the issues you're having, school is not that important. You need to go home, and you know what? I think at that point, you know, um, it would have been reasonable for his parents and him to have a discussion that day um, about this and take him to get evaluated that day or the next day. Um, and so to say, you know, okay, Ethan, go take a couple of days off school, try to figure out what's going on with you. You need to get this fixed. Definitely was reasonable. I, I, I don't think he should have remained in school that day. Um, and so, yeah. So then later that day, after this meeting, um, Ethan basically went to the bathroom, pulled the gun out of his backpack. So, so, so yeah, he had the gun that day. When they took him into this meeting, the gun was there in his backpack in the meeting. Um, and some um, some people have been critiquing the school for not searching his bag. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that would have been the right course of action. That, action. that course of action definitely would have saved lives. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, you also have to think, like, every time a student does something disturbing, you search their bag. Um, there, there are definitely some people that would um, support that course of action. I don't know if I would go that far as supporting that course of action. Um, but to continue, um, he got the gun out and um, started open firing at students, walking in the hall, firing in the classrooms, firing just at, at anyone he could. Um, and he ended up killing four students, um, and presumably wounding more. I, I didn't see a number for how many he wounded, so I'm sorry, but, um, as well, once the police arrived, um, Ethan put the gun down and just let uh, them arrest him, which is also, I don't know, somewhat abnormal, um, but that's interesting. So half an hour after the shooting started and was reported, um, his mom texted him, Ethan, don't do it, um. Is going to become important later. 
Um, and then 15 minutes after the mom texted him, uh, the dad reported his gun missing and said that he thought his son was the shooter. So um, based on these and um, I guess having Ethan remain in school, um, and I guess most likely also because they bought the gun and took him shooting with it, um, the parents are charged with invol involuntary manslaughter. As well, they were arrested for after failing to go to arraignment. Now, the parents claim that they were coming to arraignment. Um, it's just that they had fled the town for a bit out of fear of retribution from others. Um, so, I don't know. That's the two sides. I don't know what to say uh, regarding that. But so this is interesting that the parents are being charged as well. Uh, this has really never been seen before. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Um, you know, I'm sure the prosecutors, this is near Detroit, I'm assuming it's going to be a blue area, blue prosecutor, blue judge, um, probably going to paint some sort of picture that, oh, the parents bought and taught him how to use the gun. Um, and that's something sort of in the line how uh, the left often wants to uh, sue gun manufacturers for uh, gun crimes. Um, but just the same, you know, a vast majority of parents buy guns and take their kids shooting. Um, and to say that, that that action makes them responsible for the mass shooting, their their son going and committing this mass shooting, basically um, means that you can't learn to shoot a gun until you're 18 at this point. Um, if if parents are held liable for shooting it, think of think of um, all the sort of like youth courses that teach kids proper gun safety um, and how to use a gun correctly. Um, all those just completely. Uh, gone now because no one wants to be held responsible for uh, a mass shooting. Um, so I think that's just bad legal principle. Um, I don't know if it will be held up. It might be held up at a lower court, uh, probably not at a higher court. But that's just one where they might try to make um, the case. They might just make a straight net, a straight negligence cause that you know the parents um, left him in school, uh, weren't worried about this his behavior. Um, I don't know how I feel about that legal argument. Um, it is interesting. It also, though, it seems um, to hold the parents um, negligent, it seems almost impossible then to not also hold the school administrators negligent uh, for not forcing Ethan to leave the school. Um, and so I think um, any attempt to basically... Um, charge the parents, but leave the school administrators alone, uh, is going to be improperly done. As well, um, there's, 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 okay, let's put it this way. If, even if the prosecutor wanted to charge both with negligence, there's absolutely no way they could, uh, basically due to qualified immunity that basically prevents any government employee, including school administrators, to be held liable for, like, anything ever. Um, so, I, again, this sort of shows, um, how qualified immunity sucks. But anyway, um, that's just, you know, I wanted to give you all that information, ponder the legal implications of the arrest of the parents. Um, mm -hmm. as, as, as well, though, I want to say there's going to be, um, as always, there's going to be a call for more gun control, um, more gun control, more gun control, more gun control. But I do want to point the fact that, um, Ethan, at 15, bringing a gun to school is against the law. Um, and so again, you know, one of the biggest fallacies with a lot of these gun control arguments is, oh, we just need more laws. Well, if the people, if the people committing these crimes are already breaking the law to commit these crimes, what is more laws going to do? You know, um, Ethan broke the law by bringing the gun to school in the first place. Um, what, what law are they going to pass, you know, as well that would have uh, prevented this? He already broke a law. He's going to pass the same law again, pass 15-year-olds can't bring a gun to school. Well, that's already the law. Um, it didn't help the first time. Passing it the second time isn't going to help anyone. So just, um, we have a natural tendency to think, oh, if we only had more gun control, we wouldn't have these issues, and to react in a way arguing for more gun control, and I just want everyone to be aware in, in questioning um, whether or not these gun control acts will work. 
That's the one thing, too, you have to look for is a lot of people on the left will often um, see a mass shooting like this, say, oh, see, this mass shooting, therefore we should have gun control policy X. But gun control policy X doesn't actually prevent the mass shooting. It just, you know, prevents what they seem as the potential for another mass shooting. Um, and you might say, okay, well, that's still good to try to prevent a potential mass shooting. And I'd say, well, yeah, philosophically, um, but you have to understand that what they're doing is they're essentially um, using sleight of hand manipulating you because they're saying, oh, this mass shooting happened. If only we had had X policy, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And you say, well, you're right. Therefore, we should have policy X to prevent this mass shooting from ever happening again. But then when you look at it closer, policy X does not actually prevent that mass shooting. It does something else. Um, so, yeah, that's that. Okay, time for some, uh, I don't want to say brighter news. I guess it's brighter news because no one's dying um, in this news, but still pretty sad. Oh, well, I guess some of you will think this is happy because the next news is actually, um, we averted the government shutdown. So as you guys know, last week, I mentioned the fact that there may be a government shutdown on Friday because that's when the, at the time, the current continuing resolution was set to expire. Well... Um, it did not, well, it did technically, I guess, expire, but the point I'm getting to is they passed a new one to take effect right after that, and so we avoided having any government shutdown. Uh, this new agreement funds the government until about mid-February, so mid-February we get to have another showdown. Um, as well, um, actually it seems, uh, Chuck Schumer and, um, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Based on their talks, they actually do seem to be working towards a budget, which would be um, in, an incredibly rare situation. As well, though, um, even if they do pass a budget in mid-February, you know, this still, we've never had a full year-long budget. We've still always had to be partially on these continuing resolutions. And, you know, as I keep bringing up, you know, when are we going to have a budget? When are we going to have a real budget? Um, it's very sad to see that we never have a real budget. Well, I think part of the reason we never get to have a real budget is because we're too busy negotiating these continuing resolutions that there's not the time to negotiate the budget for the next year if you're still negotiating the budget for the current year. Um, and so, I don't know where I'm going with that other than just that um, they need to get their act together, as always, as always. But so, in trying to pass this continuing resolution, some senators threatened to block the um, bill in order to uh, defund uh, Biden's vaccine mandate. So there was this controversy in the Senate. Uh, some Republicans, specifically, um, oh boy, uh, Ted Cruz, um, Mike Lee, and I want to say Roger Marshall, but that seems off. But yeah, uh, basically wanted to, wanted to defund um, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate in the continuing resolution. And so they got the vote that they wanted to have. Um, however, they did not get any Democratic support and thus were unable to basically pass the amendment for the continuing resolution. Uh, Joe Manchin voted against it, uh, unfortunately, after there was some controversy as to whether or not he actually would. Um, however, this week, um, there will be another basically vaccine mandate showdown in the uh, Congress. Um, under the Congressional Review Act. So the Congressional Review Act is basically this this act which allows like the Congress to strike down um, administrative rulemaking shortly after it was made. So, you know, the thing is that most, most laws aren't actually passed by Congress. Most laws, so Congress has passed basically an outline saying we want to sort of have these things in it. And then the administrative branch has to actually create policies and engage in what's called like the rulemaking process to make the actual like bureaucratic mess and red tape everyone has to deal with. And so um, the Congress never passed an actual, you know, act or anything like that to say you have to have a vaccine mandate. Instead, what happened was, um, you know, back when OSHA was made, the government created OSHA under a, um, a bill and said, like, you know, OSHA has the power to do X, Y, and Z, or whatever. And so Joe Biden basically said, okay, OSHA has these responsibilities and powers, and so it's going to, based on that bill, make a, um, 
basically engage in the rulemaking process to write a rule that mandates that every business over 100 employees has to mandate the vaccine. Um, and so when the government engages in rulemaking, under the Congressional Review Act, Congress can basically uh, strike down a lot of those rules. And so there's going to be a vote on this um, in, the, in the Congress this week. Um, it will most likely fail. It looks like Manchin is going to support um, basically striking down the, um, whatchamacallit, striking down the vaccine mandate. So, you know, it might pass the Senate with 51 votes. However, in the House, it will surely fail with even just the slight majority the Democrats have will still most likely pass. And even if by some measure it does um, pass the House, it's almost guaranteed to be um, vetoed by the president. That's sort of the thing that Congress can vote down the president's, uh, basically, the law the president makes, but the president can just veto the Congress trying to stop the president from making laws. Um, so yeah, interesting balance of power there, but whatever. And so, um, and there will definitely not be veto-proof majorities to override his veto. And so, um, this will most likely go nowhere. It will most likely be just a campaign issue and a, um, media point for Republicans. I mean, albeit a very good one. As well, uh, during the, during the negotiations for the continuing resolution, uh, Chuck Schumer sort of had this line where it's like, if the government shuts down, this will be a Republican anti-vaccine shutdown. And it's like, okay, that's like, I know you're trying to um, basically um, critique the Republicans, but I, I, I'm pro that. I'm pro an anti-vaccine uh, shutdown. One, I like when the government shuts down because it demonstrates how useless they are. And I'm against the vaccine mandates, and I'm against uh, Joe Biden's uh, rulemaking. I'm against OSHA, and so um, shutdown due to the vaccine mandate is definitely okay in my book, which is why ultimately I am saddened by this news, though I understand some people will be uh, happy about these events. So tangentially related to the government shutdown is the debt ceiling debacle. Yep, debt ceiling was supposed to run out, I don't know, sometime early December. Not so sure when. I don't know why we haven't been getting estimates, because when it was about to run out in, like, November, we kept getting estimates, like, two months in advance, and no one's even saying a word about when it might shut, might run out now, so that's really weird, but whatever. Um, so this is a very unique idea for handling the debt ceiling. Um, it is to tack the debt ceiling raise into the National Defense Authorization Act, for those of you that don't know or remember, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act is basically a big bill approving a bunch of defense spending and defense policies and foreign uh, policy policies, um, usually extremely bipartisan. And so the idea is to basically chuck this debt ceiling raise onto the NDAA. This uh, idea is supported by Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell in the Senate. However, Kevin McCarthy, minority leader in the House, opposes it. Presumably, McCarthy wants to make the Democrats own the debt ceiling raise in order to have uh, a better a better place to campaign from for the House in 2022. The strategy here behind doing this seems to be that um, the defense-minded Republicans that don't want to vote against the NDAA um, then will have to vote for the debt ceiling increase, um, and they won't vote against it. Um, as well, um, the Republicans who... Um, yeah, the Republicans who don't want to uh, default will vote for the NDAA in that anyway. will guarantee those Republican votes for the NDAA. Um, as well, it will compensate for any progressives that want to vote down the NDAA. Um, because uh, basically, because a lot of the progressives don't support some of the foreign intervention. I mean, I agree with them. I, uh, I definitely do not support a lot of this foreign intervention we have. However, me and them have very different reasons for not supporting this foreign intervention. But anyway, with that, there is some controversy as to whether all the progressives will vote for the NDAA based on what's in it and such. And so it's sort of a way to basically tie the to the debt ceiling and the NDAA together and guarantee the votes to pass it. Um, the NDAA was passed in the House earlier, um, and I don't think any progressive voted against it. So I don't know why they're worried about progressives voting against it, but who knows? Maybe they want to tack something else on last minute as well. Maybe the, the Senate is rewriting it in some way. The House passed their version, but the Senate can 
basically write whatever version they have, and then it would have to get back to the House pretty much. Um, but 79 Republicans voted to advance the NDAA earlier, um, and there is some worry that some will peel off of the debt ceiling added, um, but there's also some worry that some will be added in because they won't want the U.S. to default. So it's an interesting tactic. Um, I hope neither pass. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, for the next story we have, um, I'm going to discuss about, um, abortion and the Supreme Court. So, as I'm sure many of you have heard in the news, um, basically the Supreme Court was hearing a case on a Mississippi abortion law passed in 2018, which banned abortion after 15 weeks. Um, opponents of the law say that it violates Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which bans abortion before viability. Um, there's a, there's a, so there's a large question around the case of why viability is the standard. Basically saying it's arbitrary because it shifts um, as technology increases. So as technology increases, you know, viability is moving forward and forward and forward. Um, the outcome of this case may be that it reverses Roe v. Wade. It may just reverse Planned Parenthood versus Casey and stick with Roe v. Wade. It may somehow reverse neither but uphold the law, which I don't know how they would do that, but the Supreme Court has not been known for rationality. They've been known for just doing whatever they want, especially with John Roberts in charge. Oh my god, John Roberts is one of the least principled justices ever, my god. All he wants to do is just... John Roberts is one of the people where it's outcome first, justification second. Um, and so there may be a... Um, that may happen. Or the, the law itself may get struck down. Um, a lot of people think that's not going to happen. Um, I don't think it will happen either, but it definitely is a possibility. I don't think we should write it off. Because if you if you have, you definitely have Sotomayor, um, Kagan, and Breyer wanting to strike it down. It wouldn't be unreasonable to say that, um, oh, what's his name? Roberts wants to strike it down. So that, won't, that would only leave, you know, one more conservative justice you'd have to bite off to basically overturn it. Um, uh, Samuel Alito, uh, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch seem guaranteed to strike down Roe v. Wade um, based on their policies and their questions. Um, Amy Coney Barrett was selected, basically, for the purpose of striking down Roe. Um, however, her positions on things have largely been unclear, and she hasn't been in the court for a while, so those court watchers aren't guaranteed um, as much as with Alito and Thomas. Um, so based on that, it looks like, you know, Kavanaugh will be the swing vote on whether um, Roe is upheld, not upheld, or whatever happens in between. As well, there is um, a potential, so I don't know how many of you know this, but the basically the majority opinion is basically like lawmaking. Like whoever crafts the majority opinion is, craft, is crafting the law. Um, and there can be different reasoning behind um, beliefs. And so who writes the majority opinion is very, very important. One, for how um, that case, that case's outcome is applied to other cases. For two, for future case law, how other future cases that are like tangentially related to it are deciding. As well as, you know, the, the toolkits of the court. Um, how the court can look at things is really important for how um, the opinion is written. And so... Who writes the opinion is decided through seniority, uh, seniority being whoever has been there the longest, except for the Supreme, the um, Chief Justice. So whichever side, uh, majority or minority, the Chief Justice gets to choose um, who wrote it based on what side they're on. And then on the side that doesn't have the Chief, yeah, so Chief Justice, basically whoever has the most seniority gets first crack at writing it, um, and then it goes from there. So there um, is the potential that basically a Kavanaugh, Barrett, Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas, a uh, majority of five, basically joins and writes to strike down Roe. But then Roberts basically joins that majority for the sole purpose of writing it himself and writing a much, much weaker, um, basically majority opinion, possibly even not striking down Roe. Um, and Roberts, I believe, has done this before on a couple of cases. And I believe, I forget who, but I want to say someone else did this, joining the minority opinion in order to write a, like, 
different minority opinion, which I can't remember when that was, but it was very interesting to see. Um, so that definitely is something that might happen. Um, as well, I want to say to everyone that um, this is a thing a lot of people don't understand. They think if Rose overturned, abortion is automatically illegal everywhere. Um, they forget that if Rose overturned, it just becomes a state issue. You know, um, some states can ban it, some states um, can legalize it. As well, you know, um, once it immediately happens, you know, Mississippi's abortion law is still, under their law, abortion is still legal up to 15 weeks. So, you know, presumably if Roe was overturned, they would immediately go to pass a law basically banning abortion um, in total. But until they get that done, you know, abortion in Mississippi would still be legal for 15 weeks. Um, but even with that being said, you know, there are states like New York and California that will have abortion legal throughout the entire time. We remember just a couple years ago, um, Virginia basically said you can kill the child after you give birth to it. So um, there will still be, um, it basically will become a state's issue. Probably the only state's issue, to be honest, because every issue now has been nationalized. Um, so that'd be interesting. As well, for those of you very curious about the decision, it will come out in June, which is a very long time for all of us to have to wait. So next, some more news. Um, this time about COVID. So, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, um, one of the most garbage mayors in America, has started a vaccine mandate for private workers. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. So let's, let's dig into this. This is, this is absolutely a, this is the most restrictive vaccine mandate seen everywhere. Uh, New York already has, like, one of the most restrictive vaccine passport systems in place. Um, it is horrible. It's absolutely um, disgusting to see. So, um, they've called this a preemptive strike against the Omicron variant. It will cover all private sector employees. So not, you know, employees at companies with a hundred or more people, all private sector employees. Do you guys really think the government has the authority to do this? Just anyone, just ask people that. You have to understand that ends do not justify means. You can't say, oh, but it's going to save lives, so we have to do it. No, no, no. If, if you think the government can force everyone to get a vaccine, you think they can force everyone to get every vaccine? You, like, if the government forces everyone to get a um, flu shot, it, are you going to support that? I'm not. I see no reason to make everyone get the flu shot. I don't think the government has the right to make everyone get a flu shot. And so I don't think they have the right to make everyone get the COVID shot. I don't think they have the right to get make everyone get any shot. So that's, that's one of the first things. Ends do not justify means. Always remember that. You can't just analyze the outcome of something to tell whether it's good. You have to analyze the methods that it uses. All right. So this is where it gets really, really sickening. So the vaccine passport, I mean, ah, the, his vaccine mandate also extends the vaccine passports to 5 to 11-year-olds. So that means if your 5 to 11-year-old is not vaccinated, they do not get to go indoor dining. They do not get to have any, um, do any, like, indoor entertainment. Oh my god, come on, they're 5 to 11-year-olds. No indoor dining or indoor entertainment. So basically, if you have a 5 to 11-year-old, and you want, you can't go anywhere with them, ever, ever again. They're not allowed anywhere else. <clears throat> Think of what this is going to do to their development. I mean, they're, <clears throat> my god, I'm sorry. My voice. Um, this is... This, they're literally preventing kids from fully developing by banning any social interaction. Humans are social creatures. We need social interaction. We need social interaction to develop. At five years old, you're still developing. You need social interaction. And you're telling them they get no social interaction? And don't try to tell me, oh, they can go outside. In New York in winter, you can't go outside, dude. There's nothing really to do. As well, New York is a concrete jungle. The majority of things to do are inside. And and you want to just keep 5 to 11-year-olds in their home. Only 205 5 to 11-year-olds have died throughout the entire pandemic. 205? 205 deaths warrants ruining, potentially ruining the life of every 5 to 11-year-old? Um, like, like, what? This is insane. This is an insane um, abuse of authority. And this is, it's unscientific. You know, there's no cost-benefit analysis here at all. Um, yeah. 
as well the vaccine mandate involves mandated vaccination. So not just a vaccine passport. Mandated vaccination for 5 to 11 year olds who participate in sports, band, orchestra, dance, or other high-risk extracurricular activities. What? If you want your 5 or 11 year old to have a life, they have to get the vaccine. How is this not blackmail or extortion? If you basically, you know, <laughs> if you hold a gun to someone's head and say, give me all your money or I shoot you, that's, that's, that's coercion. That's like blackmail, extortion, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's not free will. If someone basically does, anytime anyone does something under the threat of force, it is not free will, it is coercion. They are coercing people to get the vaccine. This is not about incentives, this is about coercion. The government is coercing you to get your kids vaccinated. An age group that has 205 deaths from it. You know what they also forget? If you're under 18, the flu is more deadly, okay? If you're under 18, the flu is more deadly to you than, the co than, than COVID. If you're 18 to about like 55, the flu and COVID are like just as um, dangerous if you're like in like good health. If you're above 55 or in like bad health, then COVID is more dangerous than the flu, but not by a severe amount. Like, yeah, more dangerous, but not, not like warranting preventing your kids from having development and like having a life. This is disastrous and it's disgusting. Um... <clears throat> The right claimed early on that the um, left wanted to make the right second-class citizens. I mean, that the left wanted to make the unvaccinated second-class citizens. And this is clearly happening. The unvaccinated are clearly second-class citizens. If you're unvaccinated, one, you can't work. Because you can't work in the private sector, you can't work in the public sector. So if um, you're unvaccinated, you're not allowed to work. If you're unvaccinated, um, if your kids are unvaccinated, they can't have a life. They can't go anywhere. I mean, how is this not a threat of force? If you're telling people you can't work unless you get vaccinated, um, how, like, what? How is, in any way, is that not a threat of force or of um, coercion? Like, at, like at that point, doing what Austria did and just say everyone has to get the vaccine is no different from saying to work you have to get the vaccine because everyone has to work. You can't not work. It's impossible. I know that we forget that because of how robust our welfare system is, but if you think back to like the dawn of man, when you had to go out and collect berries or hunt or else you died, you had to find shelter, make shelter, you had to cook your food, um, make fires, like, you can't not work. You have to, if you don't work, imagine if you never did, any, did anything ever, you would just die. You never drank, never ate, never did anything. You would just die, you decompose. Like, it's, like, we have to work to do things. Other animals work to do things, too. Don't forget that. Um, and so to say you have to get the vaccine or uh, you can't work is the same as saying get the vaccine or die. Um, and that, that's what it is. This, is. this is essentially just a plain vaccine mandate on absolutely everyone. As well, for businesses that don't comply, they face a fifteen thousand, I mean, a $14,000 per pot fee per violation. Um, one, I want to ask why $14,000? That's very arbitrary, it seems to me. I mean, it's, it's round in the sense it's to the nearest thousand, but I don't know. Why not make it 15000 That's at least a multiple of five. Um, so again, just, I know that's unimportant, but sort of just to point out how government policies are always arbitrary. They're always like, eh, what seems right? There's no scientific um, philosophical, moral reason for it to be $14,000. It's just like, eh, it seems good enough. <clears throat> As well, this, basically all these policies go into effect, um, December 27th. If this is so urgent, um, why not, why not sooner? I mean, the virus isn't gonna wait, um, uh, for us to put it in effect. Well, it's not sooner because there's a trade-off between, you know, their so-called security is a trade-off between um, their policies and practicality. And this policy, the fact that it doesn't go into effect until the 27th, basically proves that. They admit there's a trade-off. Um, and you might be saying, well, that's 
not revolutionary. We all know that the trade-off. No, we don't all know that the trade-off because the left has basically been gaslighting us, saying that there's no um, no higher value and then COVID prevention. A lot of us were saying at the beginning of the pandemic, hey, these shutdowns, let's say even if they do save life from COVID, you forget how they're going to ruin lives. They forget um, how worse everything's going to be for everyone. They ignore, you know, all the missed, um, like medical treatment people missed that led to excess death, all the excess suicides that were going to happen, um, and just the deteriorating quality of life. The, it is worse than the opioid epidemic because more people are doing drugs now because life, life sucks under um, lockdowns and mandates. But you know what? Everyone that pointed that out got laughed at, got told they were essentially Nazis and wanted to kill your grandmother. But it's, that's just a fact of the reality. You know, preventing COVID can't be our highest value. Like, maximizing, like, human life and human flourishing has to be it. And let me tell you, there's a difference between surviving and living. That's something the left has not been able to grasp. They want to survive. That's it. Other people, we want to live. We want to live our lives and not be slaves to the government. Um, but the left will never understand that because they worship government as the highest value of all. So again, um, this is just... This is the disaster of the left. All right, everyone. That was good. Finally got a drink of water uh, to clear my throat. They don't let us have uh, water in the studio, so sometimes it's I need to clear my throat, but can't. Okay. So now on to the next news story. Um. Okay, this is funny. I enjoy this. I enjoy political infighting because it illustrates um how horrible these people are. <clears throat> So, there seems to be some turmoil between uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, there's a lot more rumors of there being issues um, between them, some disagreements about uh, the role of the vice president. Um, as well, more Harris aides are quitting. Her office has incredibly high turnover um, right now. Um, in fact, another aide just left. Um, Basically, one of the critiques the aides have of her is that she won't read any of the reports they give her, and then she yells at them for not being prepared, which, I mean, is incredibly on brand for her. I mean, let's be honest. Have you ever seen her try to answer a question? She knows nothing. She's an idiot, a bumbling buffoon. And whenever she knows nothing, she just sort of laughs. They're like, ha ha ha, ha ha ha. Very annoying, very obnoxious. Um... With that being said as well, um, I mean, she just, does anyone think she's a nice person? She just comes off as so mean and so, you know, grandstanding and such. And I mean, she, keep in mind, she's the prosecutor, the DA or AG or whatever. I, okay, AG, okay, had to think about it. She's the AG of California that kept, um, kept people in prison on marijuana charges, kept them in longer than necessary, for the free prison labor, and then went on a radio show laughing about the fact that she did marijuana in her youth. I mean, you can't get more hypocritical than that. I mean, come on. And that's detestable. Imagine being such a disgusting human being that you keep people in jail longer than expected for free prison labor for a crime you yourself also committed. How do you sleep at night? You have to be just the most morally detestable person ever to do something like that. Um, as well, the aides say that they just, she is just so mean and rude to her. Um, I mean, she is just so mean and rude to them. Sorry, the, the aide that said that was a, was a girl, so. But regardless. Um, I just want to say, oh, as well, as well, with all the issues between Harris and Biden, I mean, what did you guys expect? Kamala Harris called Joe Biden a racist on the debate stage. Okay. So one, I mean, either either that encounter was genuine or it was disingenuous. Okay. So that, that's, the, that's that sort of binary. It's a disingenuous or genuine, um, like, she's being genuine or disingenuous when saying that. Okay. If she was being, um, ingen being genuine, genuine about it, one... Why would she agree to work with him? I mean, would you be the running mate for someone you truly believe is a vicious racist? The answer is obviously like no. You'd have to be, you'd have to be like one of the worst people ever to 
call someone a racist on national television, believe they're a racist, and then become their vice running mate um, for, for president. Okay. So then, if her comments are disingenuous, um, that means she just lied. She just lied then. Lied calling him a racist, and then was like, oh sure, I'll be on your um, campaign. I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll be your running mate. But someone who's willing to lie on uh, national television, pretty bold-facedly, I mean, what do you, do you expect her to be a good person or be a, a good, a good vice president? Someone who's willing to lie on national television about you. You know, it's not like she lied about one of the candidate, other candidates. I mean, that would be like inviting one of your worst enemies to be your, your running mate. What? That's such a silly thing to do. And so... To see um, controversy between the two of them is just n not surprising at all to me. <clears throat> okay, here's some fun news. Here's like some fun, good news. Uh, Chris Cuomo was fired from CNN. This is hilarious, okay? So Chris Cuomo, as you know, brother of Andrew Cuomo, disgraced uh, former New York governor. Um... He got so Chris Cuomo got fired for helping um, his brother about with the sexual assault scandal. Originally, uh, Chris was just suspended from his job, but then lawyers found texts that proved that Chris was trying to use his influence to aid um, Andrew. Um, and I just want to say, you know, some people are going to frame this as, "Wow, look at this! CNN policing their own. See, journalism isn't dead. Journalists can be objective." And let me tell you. This has nothing to do about the journalistic, like, so-called code of conduct, okay? This is solely because, um, Chris got caught. That's the only reason. This was obviously happening. Literally, as the, um, as, like, the controversy was breaking about the sexual assault, Republicans and people on the right were saying Chris Cuomo is aiding his brother. But the leftists looked at everyone and said, Oh, no, no, he's not at all. He never would. No, he obviously was. He obviously was. You'd have to be an idiot not to think that. Okay? As well, if you go even before that, though, when Andrew Cuomo was, like, Governor Supreme, America's governor for handling uh, COVID, Chris Cuomo was having him on every single night, talking him up, praising him up. How is that supposed to be unbiased coverage? It was obviously biased coverage. You can't be unbiased towards your own brother, especially when they're being so playful, like, on television for everyone, okay? And so then, Chris Cuomo was obviously and directly helping his brother with the COVID, um, basically COVID response narrative, okay? But he never got suspended or fired for that. No, only with the sexual misconduct and only because he got caught with text messages. This is not about, um, this is not about what is right and what is wrong. This is about them getting caught. That's all there is to it. And I mean, I'm glad he's fired, don't get me wrong, but, you know, um, you know, there's like this the case where, you know, two people want the same thing, but they want them for very different reasons. And I, I talk about that a lot because, you know, I, I agree with certain outcomes certain people propose, but we reach them from different conclusions. And this is one of them, like, sure, I'd love to see Chris Cuomo fired, but I also would love to see him fired when he started covering his brother, um, definitely biasedly. Um, I actually, I don't even know if I say that, because, like, because it's like, okay, you, you can be biased. I mean, let's let's be honest. All news is biased. I'm biased when I sit here, you know. Like, we can't, like, outlaw biases, okay? And so, like, Chris Cuomo is obviously going to be biased. And so my issue is not that Chris Cuomo is biased. My issue is that he's biased but pretends that he's not biased. But even then, I mean, let's be honest. Most people, most people, most people like to pretend that they're very reasonable people like they're very good thinkers and they evaluate everything most people are not like that at all my real issue with the situation is that chris cuomo was unbiased was being ah, was being biased people on the right said he was being biased but then the left basically gaslit everyone and said no he's being unbiased which was not true and that's my issue with the whole event okay now on to a bit more news uh, we're going to cover some election stuff, because that's my favorite, is to cover the elections. So, this is regarding the uh, race for the Georgia, Georgia governorship. Former Senator David Perdue um, is going to ru run to challenge incumbent Brian Kemp for the Republican nomination. 
So for those of you that don't remember, uh, David Perdue lost to um, John Ossoff in the 2020 uh, Senate race. Um, he 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 beat Ossoff in the um, in like the original general election. However, Georgia, you have to get like the actual um, you have to get like 50 plus one vote of the percent. Uh, 50% plus one vote of the actual vote to win. He got like 49.7 like or something. But he was still like a couple of percentage points ahead of John Ossoff. However, then in the um, in like the runoff vote, uh, Ossoff was able to eke out a very narrow victory over him. Um, this was seen as a big upset and unexpected. This is largely, so basically, the calculation for what happened regarding that was that Republicans would have won. However, um, a lot of the Republican base was turned off by Trump saying the election was stolen and from being upset about Trump losing the election, um, if that's what you believed, if that's what the Republican person believed at that time. Um, so yeah, if you're a Republican at that time, either you're upset because the election was stolen, in which case if the election was stolen, um, why would you then vote? Because that doesn't matter, especially considering Georgia was one of the states that Trump uh, lost in, and that was one of the states considered um, stolen. And so, if they stole um, the presidency, why wouldn't they steal the Senate seat? Since if that turns you off from voting, as well, even if you did believe, I mean, didn't believe the election was stolen, you still, you know, um, your enthusiasm is turned down um, to vote because of the loss. That combined with the fact there was a lot of uh, Democratic um, happiness regarding Joe Biden winning, regarding flipping Georgia regarding the chance to flip the Senate if they got to this runoff. Um, that, that basically pushed turnout um, in two different directions, allowing Democrats to eke out that um, victory in the Georgia Senate seats. Um, as well, there was some talk about uh, David Perdue uh, challenging, uh, running for the um, Georgia Senate seat up in this election in 2022, 20, uh, running against Raphael Warnock for that Senate seat. Um, however, he declined to do that. Probably a smart move, um, considering he just lost the Senate. Um, however, I, I think it would be unfair to say that there's no way he could have won, um, especially considering um, Ossoff did eke out kind of a bigger victory than Warnock did, but that's um, neither here nor there. So um, Purdue is going to challenge uh, Brian Kemp for the Republican nomination. Again, incumbent Governor Brian Kemp, um, he's been having a lot of basically fighting with uh, Donald Trump over, um, basically over whether or not the Georgia election was stolen or not. Uh, Purdue is definitely more um, connected with Trump and is going to seem uh, most likely to be the Trump-endorsed candidate for um, the governorship beating Brian Kemp. Um, I think there's a good chance Purdue beats, um, beats Purdue in the primary, I mean, Purdue beats Kemp in the primary. Um, that's what I'm calling will happen. Um, but yet to be seen. It's going to be an interesting race for sure. As well, uh, Stacey Abrams is running um, on the Democratic side for their nomination. And I have a question. Do you think she's going to claim to be the incumbent? Because she's never conceded that she won, that she lost um, the Georgia governor election in 2018. She still says she won. You know, as much as um, Democrats critique Republicans for saying the election was stolen, Stacey Abrams still contends that she is the rightful governor of Georgia, okay? Um, so let, let, let him who is without sin throw the first stone or, you know, those in glass houses should throw stones, whatever you want to say. Um, there is kind of a double standard right here, which is quite funny to see. As well, then for the general election, um, I don't know. I think Georgia turning blue was more of a fluke than anything. I think with Trump off the ballot, I think Republicans are going to pick up Georgia. I think they're even probably going to pick up the Georgia uh, Senate seat in 2024. Wait, no, they're the Senate seat in 2022, my mistake. Um, so the question is, um, who has the better chance of beating Stacey Abrams? Um, Brian Kemp, most people might say Brian Kemp, um, that he, him being more of a moderate Republican, but to be honest, I, Democrats aren't going to vote for a moderate Republican um, in this case. Um, they're going to vote for Stacey Abrams just because of all the hype that's been around her and such. Um, so anything, the only thing Brian Kemp's going to do is turn down Republican um, enthusiasm and uh, support. So I think uh, Purdue has the best chance to basically eke out a win. As well, I don't know if Purdue ever questioned, uh, ever said that the Georgia race was stolen because 
obviously, um, when you're running in the uh, runoff, you don't want to say, oh, it was stolen, because then that then to all your support, it's like, oh, if you think it was stolen, well, then why should I vote? Just going to steal it again. Um, so he couldn't really be saying that. Um, I don't think he ever did or if he ever changed his mind, but I might be wrong on that. So Purdue might still be able to, maybe not as Yunkin as Yunkin, but um, not as Trumpy as some other ones. And I think we'll still um, be able to rally at the base enough to uh, win the governorship. Okay, now on to some economic news. The Federal Reserve wants to start tapering its bond purchases. Um, so um, that and so I want to say first that, that doesn't mean they're going to stop bond purchases. It means they're just not going to purchase as many, and they're going to purchase like less and less as time progresses. <clears throat> this is their effort to um, lower inflation, but I don't think it's going to work. It's not going to have a strong enough effect, especially with the um, trajectory the economy is currently on, as well as the fact that the federal government is trying to pass a, um, an exp expansionary, fiscal, expansionary fiscal policy through, one, the infrastructure bill, and two, through Build Back Better, and three, through whatever budget it is they um, cook up. As well, let's be honest. Any amount of monetary policy leads to unnatural interest rates, which um, is bad for the economy. All the printing money, all the debt, just increases um, inflation anyway. Um, at the end of the day, the use of monetary policy distorts economic incentives and basically makes the economy less reliable and make less sense. Um, the only good monetary policy is no uh, monetary policy. Okay, time for some economic indicators. Um, okay, producer price index for month over month for October is at 0.6%, previously up 0.5%. Pretty big jump for uh, month over month. Um, the core PPI for month over month, um, I believe that's, I don't know the difference between core PPI and regular PPI. Uh, usually core, there's something taken out of it. Um, because like core CPI is CPI without food. Um, but I don't think there's any food in the producer price index because it's for producers. So, but who knows? It is up 0.4%, previously up 0.2%. Um, again, pretty big when you consider month over month. Now here's the year over year. So the producer price index year over year for October is 8.6%. That is a gigantic jump. The previous month it was up 8.6% as well. Um, that's crazy inflation, okay? And this is why I want to point out again, I, I can't drop this home enough, that the CPI and the PPI and all that do not actually measure inflation. They measure changes in price, okay? So right now, they're trying to tell you, oh, inflation 6 point whatever percent. So that's what CPI is. CPI does not measure inflation. They measure um, price changes. The PPI is measuring the price change. If you want to say, you know, if you can say that inflation is 6.8 based off of the P CPI, you should be able to say inflation is 8.6 based off the PPI. But, you know, they <clears throat> government officials don't do that because they don't want it to make it seem as bad. If you want to know the inflation, you have to measure the change in money supply, which has skyrocketed during the pandemic due to every single bill they passed. This inflation is not just from infrastructure or the American Recovery Act. This inflation is from all the way back the first inf the first um COVID relief bill passed under Trump in 2020. It goes all the way back to that. All that spending all the way up to now, that's what this inflation is from. It's from the increase in the money supply, it's from the debt, from the borrowing. It's not just price changes. As well, core price producer index year over year for October is 6.8%. Um and previously it was at 6.8%. Um, <clears throat> okay, the 30-year mortgage rate for the week of November 5th is 3.13%, down a little from 3.24%, uh, probably just a little blip, um, probably going to continue to grow, based on what I would say. The mortgage applications for the week of November 5th are up 5.5%, Previ <clears throat> previously they were down 3.3%, so they're starting to rebound some. The mortgage refinance index for the week of November 5th is 2,841, previously 2,645. So increase in mortgage refinances. Um, a lot of people are worried that interest rates are going to start to climb, so they want to refinance now, pretty much. What I would say is, why didn't you refinance earlier when they were even lower, you know? I'd 
read finance every month if the um, price keeps going down. But I, I guess you have a <clears throat> you have to deal with the fact that there are like refinance fees, so you can't just refinance every month to get a lower rate. But I don't know. I I thought it was pretty obvious that mortgage rates were going to start to increase. Um, when all the people started buying more and more houses, and so I would have refinanced that. The MBA uh, purchase index for the week of November fifth uh, is. 278.4, previously uh, 271.1, so increase in purchases, it seems. All right, inflation rate year-over-year year based off of the uh, CPI, most likely, year-over-year year for October, 6.2%, they say. Previously, 5.4%. Again, based on the PPI, that should be higher, don't you think? Core inflation rate year-over-year year, um, for October, 4.6%, previously 4%. Not looking good, guys. Not looking good. All right, the jobless claim four-week average for November 6th is 278,000. Previously, it was at 285,000. So again, dropping four-week um, average for unemployment. So that's good. Unemployment is continuing to go down. Initial jobless claims for the week of November 6th, 267,000. Previously, at 271,000. So still going down. However... It was estimated to be um, to go down 260. It would ah, it was estimated to only be 265,000 percent. So that's about 2,000 more than expected, which is not a good sign. Continuing jobless claims are uh, 2.16 million. This is actually up from the previous um, 2.1 million. Oh, but that's uh, for the week of October 30th too. So that's a week behind as well. Wholesale inventories, month over month for September. Oh my god, all the way back for September. Talk about a trailing indicator. Uh, but 1.4%, previously at 1.1%. So that's good. Wholesale inventory is going up in the supply shock. That's good. But again, that's for September. That's so far away. Um, I really wouldn't consider that for anything. Um, okay, we have Jolt's job opening for September. 10. Uh, 438 million, previously um, 10.629 million, so less job openings. Um, I don't know if that means new job openings or just total job openings. Like, I don't know if some of that decline might be from taking jobs. I'm not sure. Um, so I'll have to look into that more. Oh, geez. I was looking at the things for the first week of November. My god, we already went over all these numbers, and no wonder why they seemed off. What in the world? I'm so sorry, guys. I really messed up. Huh. Okay, so, okay, here are... Wow, I feel really um, stupid now, reading you guys all those. Okay, so starting for November 29th, um, yeah, oh my god, I should have been able to tell based on the fact that the November 5th was the week I was getting for things. My god. Okay, okay. So, starting last week, pending home sales year-over-year year for October, down 1.4%. Previously down 8.2%, um, so, you know, staying somewhat normal. Pending home sales month-over-month month for October, up 7.5%, previously down 2.4%, so that's a good sign. Um... The home price year-over-year year, um, up 19.1%, previously up 19.6%. Very, very big jumps in price. Home prices month-over-month month for September, 0.8%, previously up 0.9%. The house price index year-over-year year for September, 17.7%, uh, before 18.5%, so slowing down the growth a little. House price index month-over-month. Up 0.9%, previously up 1%, normal. Well, normal compared to each other. I don't know about normal in normal times, but. House price index for September um, was 354, previously 351. So, um, increase in prices, definitely. Okay, here we go. The 30-year mortgage rates for the week of November 26th, 3.31%. Previously, 3.24%. So, increasing um, mortgage rate. I mean, increasing, yeah, increasing mortgage rate. Mortgage rate applications, down 7.2%. Previously, it was up 1.8%. So, you see some decrease in mortgages. 
Um, okay, mortgage rate finance index, uh, 2,304, previously 2,706. So refinances are going down, makes sense. Prices make sense because the uh, mortgage rates are going up. Um, doo -doo -doo. The uh, PMI is at 61.1, previously at 60.8. That is good, increasing as well. That's an index, so being at where it is in the index, that's uh, a very good sign that shows um, good potential for growth of the economy. Construction spending, that's an interesting indicator I haven't seen yet. Month over month for October, 0.2%, previously down 0.1%, very small moves. Um, okay, uh, jobless claims for week average for November 27th, uh, two, wow, uh, 238.75 thousand. That is definitely down. Previously, it was 251,000. Good, good, good. Initial jobless claims um, for the week of November 27th, 222,000. That's good. Previously, it was 194,000, so up again above um, 200,000, but not horribly so. It was a jump about 30,000, which does suck. However, the consensus was that it was going to be 240,000 um, initial jobless claims, and so it did beat expectations, which is good. Continuing jobless claims are 1.95 million, which is um, down from the previous of 2.06 million. So that's good. Jobless claims are going down. Okay, non-farm payrolls for November are uh, 210,000, previously 546,000. What in the world? What a... That doesn't make any sense. Okay, unemployment rate for November um, is 4.2%. Previously was 4.6%. Um, so yeah, unemployment still continuing to creep down, which is very good. Average hourly earnings month over month for November up 0.3%. Previously up 0.4%. Um, it's not beating inflation, so you are getting your pay lowered. Average hourly earnings year over year for November, 4.8%. Uh, previously 4.8%. Um, again, not keeping with inflation. You are going down. Um, the PMI for November, 69.1! Oh, non-manufacturing PMI. Okay, that was a different PMI. I was like, holy cow, what a jump. Okay. Factory orders, month over month for October, up 1%, previously up 0.5%. Uh, small but good news, you know. Take what you can get. Alright. So that's all the economic indicators we have. Um... So that's largely the show today. I want to tell everyone that I will not have a show next week. Um, I will be having midterms, and I will thus be too busy as well, physically be unavailable at the time of the show. As well, um, for those of you that listen on the radio, um, winter break will be starting at college, and I will not be having the radio show um, until January, about mid-January. Um, however, I have started publishing these episodes of the podcast. So if you would still like to listen to me over winter break, uh, look up Here's the Issue. I should be on most podcasting platforms except maybe Google or Apple because they have really weird systems. Um, but um, the more niche app podcast apps actually um, will have me because of the way their software works um, with the RSS feeds. As well, I am on YouTube under Here's the Issue. As well, um, if you go to hti.news, I have a website where I, um, where you can basically view the episodes as well. But thank you all very much. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye, everybody.